to come together and gather together with friends and with family and to worship you, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the Christmas season, the Advent season, and we thank you for uh, what that means for us uh, personally, individually, and uh, uh, as Christians, Lord. We thank you for our Christian families. We thank you for our Christmas parties and our, our celebrations coming up, Lord, but help it to also uh, be focused on, on what it should be and what it, uh, what it means to us as, as Christians, Lord. We thank you for Ben, and uh, we pray that you be with him as he brings your word to us, Lord. Help our hearts to be open to receive it and to share the word with uh, our friends and our family and our community this, this season, Lord. We thank you for loving us, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is where we will be. I used to be a lifeguard in high school. And you know the illustration I'm about to tell you. Hear me was something dumb we did, and so you don't need to emulate this. I was doing a lot of running at the time. I was training, but I didn't know how to train correctly. And so what I did was I bought uh, ankle weights, strapped them on my ankles like I was going to go walk at the mall. And then, uh, oh, in high school when we were lifeguards, two or three times a part of our job was we'd have to go to the pool early, two or three times a week, and we'd have to clean it, get the vacuum, get underwater, scrub all of the dirt and gross band-aids that were left at the bottom of the swimming pool, get it all cleaned up, kind of take care of everything that was around the pool. Uh, well, my, after my freshman year of lifeguarding, they took out the diving board, and so it was just a pool. And then we thought that what would be really refreshing for kids is if we made the water about 80 degrees, 85 degrees, so in a nice hot day you could jump into a warm bath. So we had no kids that ever came to the pool. <laughs> We just sat there and watched each other, and, and that was it. was before cell phones. It was really boring. And so uh, there was a friend of mine named Eric, uh, and, and on this particular day, we're two of the pool cleaners. It's a slow day at the pool. I have my ankle weights. Well, Eric's dad played for the Steelers as a lineman, and, and then they got hurt. He's just Eric's just this massive dude. He's trying to go to college to play football, and so he had a weighted vest. And so I don't, our prefrontal cortex wasn't developed. We weren't making good decisions. We decided we wanted to run on the bottom of the pool. So we strap on my ankle weights, strap on Eric's vest, and we would just jump into the nine foot, which was the deep end, which is also why we didn't have a diving board because it was only nine feet. Used to, you couldn't dive so far in the water, but you know, as time progressed, we were better divers, I guess. And so we would jump in, we would walk on the bottom, and then we run out of air. You would jump as high as you could, you could get your head above water, you could breathe, and you would poop right back down. <laughs> we did this, had a blast doing it. Um, it was easy to clean, it was easy to get the leaves like the vacuum couldn't get. Well, one time we were doing this, and I noticed Eric jumps, but his head doesn't come above the water. He, didn't, he wasn't as strong as I was, I guess. And so he went back down, and I noticed he was struggling. So I, I dive in, and he's getting his vest off, and I'm, like, getting the weights off his ankles. And he, he comes up, and, of course, we're laughing about it. And, you know, he gets his breath. We look at each other, and we're like, oh, this is, you know, we should you know, not, let's not do this. Like, okay, we need to come up with a better plan. Let's do it in the seven-foot instead of the nine-foot. Saved his life that day, you know. I don't know if we did it again. I know we talked other people into doing it again. The point of the illustration, especially when we come to this, this passage of Scripture and this text of Scripture that we're in with Peter, is, is Peter's telling us two things in the gospel. 
One, he's going to tell us there are things in our life we have to get rid of. There are things that the gospel calls us to not do, people and characteristics that we are not to have. And those things, what they do is they weight us down and they cause us to sink. And the second part of that is if we understand that those things weight us down, right? Our, our cause, especially in our part of the world, is I'm just going to be a good moral person, so we're going to grip the moral will, we're going to drive and do the right thing. But if we understand the gospel motivation behind casting those things off, if we understand that God has designed us to breathe air, that we don't do well living underwater, if we'll cast those sins off and we'll be able to float and breathe better, that we thrive where God has us because of the gospel. If we understand that's the reason why we shed our weights, then we have a desire to get rid of those things. We have a desire to grow in the Lord. That it's better to run on land than it is to run underwater, as God intended. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We'll read it, and then we will uh, pray. Therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and uh, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today because you first came to us. That's what Christmas reminds us of is that you're not a God who just sits in heaven waiting for us to work our way to you, that you're a God who comes and does the work of the gospel for us. That our faith isn't based upon how good I am or how many laws I can obey. God, my faith is based upon how good you are, how righteous you are, how great your gospel is. As we look through this text this morning, I pray that, that you would help us to taste and see that you are good and that that would give us a desire to cast off anything that's holding us back and away from you and to desire to strive, God, for the milk of your word. Help us to grow in you this morning, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. So uh, the trick when we see a therefore, we want to stop and see what it's. We're getting there. Uh, so Peter set up everything that he's saying now. Right, we're, we're officially out of 1 Peter chapter 1. We did it. Now we're in chapter 2. There's five chapters. So when Peter says, therefore, what he's talking about is everything that he said in chapter 1. He says this is a group that's written to this letter of these, these chosen, these elect exiles, as Peter calls them, who are scattered over Asia Minor. It's not into a particular church or a particular pastor. However, Peter has these churches and these pastors in mind when he pens this letter. He talks about the salvation that God brings, the, the Son accomplished, the Father planned, and the Spirit applied salvation and how that gospel brings a living hope because Jesus is not dead. He talks about how the word of God is what we need, how the gospel is this proclaimed word, the gospel is Jesus in my place, and how the Bible tells this story of how and why Jesus came to be in our place. And so because of this gospel, because of this good news, you and I, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, are called to not look like the world, but to be holy. To have lives that are distinct, that are set apart, because we don't belong to the world. Much like the original audience, we are exiles. This is not our home if we're believers in Jesus Christ. Our values and our hopes and our desires and just our general life structure doesn't fit here. 
The world is going to persecute us. That's a big theme in 1 Peter. But a bigger theme is the gospel, the word of God, is enough in the midst of it. And so Peter's saying persecution is not an excuse to live an unholy life. In fact, it ought to motivate us to be more holy. And last week we looked at, at, at 1 Peter 22 through 25, which is largely about how if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're commanded to love brothers and sisters in Christ in your, in, in your local church. That you've been saved with an imperishable seed and that the brothers and sisters who are believers next to you have been saved by the same gospel message that you have been saved with. The, the seed, uh, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains from this imperishable seed doesn't go away. It's this gospel, it's enough and it's eternal. Therefore, if we're loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in this tangible local church, then there are certain things that you and I cannot do and cannot be. I love Morgan very much, my wife. I covenant with her before God, and I can tell her I love you. I can buy her gifts, which I know make her feel loved and feel cherished. But if I refuse to talk to her from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day, do I really love her? What Peter is saying is we can say we love, we can say we're these church members, we're covenanted together, but if that doesn't impact how we live our lives, then we're not actually loving one another. So that's the therefore. Then Peter says, rid yourself. The idea of rid yourself means to lay aside, to take off, to put away. Think in terms of clothing. If you have a dirty, nasty shirt with holes in it, it's just covered in all the filth and the grossness of life, the diseases and germs that we pick up from the school and from our children. No? I guess all the ones dealing with that are at home. That we take those clothes off and we put on the righteousness of Christ. This is a common theme throughout the New Testament. Paul, in Ephesians 4.22, says, Take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. In Colossians 3.8, it says, now put, now, uh, But now put away all of the following, anger and wrath and malice and slander and filthy language from your mouth. For, uh, Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us... Lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us. James one twenty one says, Therefore, ridding ourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What we need to see here and what Peter's going to get at is, is if we rid ourselves of these things, we should not ever go back to them. That would be like taking off those old, nasty, dirty, muddy, disease-ridden clothes, taking a shower, being cleaned, being saved, and then going back to those nasty, dirty clothes and putting them back on. No. Those aren't the clothes we go back to. Those aren't the clothes we send through the washing machine. Those aren't the clothes we donate. Those are the clothes we throw away. We burn them. We get them out of us, away from our house. And this isn't an inclusive list that Peter's about to, to give us, right? He has these particular people in mind who have this particular themes, right? Exile, suffering, holiness, etc. In, in mind. And so these are things that these particular people are struggling with, and, 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 and they're detrimental to the love that we're supposed to have for one another because this comes right on the heels of chapter 1. Chapter numbers and verse numbers in the original languages don't exist. 
They're good and they're helpful. They help us keep track, right? I can say go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and you know where to go. If we didn't have those, I would be like, go to, uh, Peter talks about it, it's kind of three-fourths the way through. It would be difficult. But in our minds, when we read Scripture, when we see that there's a verse, chapter 1, and then a chapter 2, we automatically break them and make them two different sections. A really cool and helpful thing for you to do if you want to grow in your reading of the Word is find a Bible that doesn't have those and just read through it. And what you'll see is you'll pick up on themes and ideas that you've never seen before. Things will connect because those numbers aren't there. This, therefore, is not separated by a chapter. It's just a word. And so Peter's saying all of these things are detrimental to the love that you're supposed to have. The first one being malice. It means evil behavior, wickedness. The definition is it's perverting of virtue or moral values and principles with the purposes to an evil end. My family was watching a movie um, called Zootopia. There's a bunny who becomes a cop. Obviously, this is not a real movie. But at one point in the movie, the bunny goes to the bunny cop goes to an ice cream store and she sees a fox. They're all speaking English, which is funny to me because I don't know if that would be the language animals would speak. And she sees this fox trying to buy a popsicle for his son, but it's an elephant popsicle shop. Big problem. And the elephants will not serve this fox uh, the popsicle. And so the little bunny's dressed up like, or the little fox is dressed up like a, an elephant because that's what he wants to be when he grows up, but he doesn't understand basic fox anatomy. And so the bunny cop steps in and she gets the fox and his child this, this um, giant popsicle. It's an elephant sized popsicle. And so the bunny cop and the foxes, or foxen, or feeks, the two fox, leave. They leave the bunny, and then the bunny ends up finding out later that the little fox is not actually a child, but just a different breed of fox, and he just looks at her. He's actually an adult, and that they were scheming her. They were scheming the popsicle place. They would melt it down, the popsicles down, so these little limbling, limbling, limbings, would come and eat the little popsicles and they would take the popsicle sticks and they would sell them to the other rodents so that they could build houses with redwood. All of this is the idea of malicious intent. It's doing good or doing evil under the guise of good. It's going to a store to buy a popsicle for your son when in reality you have completely other motives to do so. I think it's really interesting that Peter's telling this to persecuted people. Don't use morals, don't use virtues for evil purposes. Morals for morals' sake and virtues for virtues' sake will fail, and they will be used to manipulate people. Hello, politicians. So what Peter says is to maintain this love for one another, you have to rid yourself of all malice. You can't be doing evil and trying to make it look good. Deceit is the next one. It means uh, guile or craftiness or treachery. It's a shrewdness as demonstrated by being in the skilled, uh, uh, skills of deception. So I asked Morgan last night. Neither of us could remember what happened or which daughter it was. But at one point in our married life, and probably in Ira, but we're not 100% certain, <laughs> Morgan told one of the girls, don't touch something. We can't remember what she's not supposed to touch. We can't even remember which child it was. And whichever child it was, then in turn grabbed their baby doll and got their baby doll's hand and had the baby doll lean out and touch whatever object it was that they were not supposed to be touching. 
did they break the letter of the law? No. Did they break the rule? Yes. That's deceit. Think in the Garden of Eden. What does the serpent, Satan, say to Eve? Did God really say? Think about that phrase. On the surface, there's no lie there. Maybe Satan's just curious. Maybe he didn't hear what God said, and he's trying to understand so he can follow God's rules better. Maybe deeper than that, what Satan's doing is he's introducing this nugget that you can question God. I've always found it interesting in the garden that if you take out intent, if you look at just the letter of the law, Satan doesn't lie. He manipulates, he deceives. What he tells Eve is, if you eat the fruit, certainly you won't die. And then she didn't die physically after she ate the fruit. Adam and Eve lived, but spiritually they died. And they introduced sin, the sinful nature, into everything. So following the letter of the law without following the heart of the law is at the core of what deceit is. This is the sin of the Pharisees. So often we think that the Pharisees were just strict and that they were just harsh in keeping the religion and forcing people to keep this law. But reality, what the Pharisees were doing is they were interpreting the law, understanding the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. That's not what Jesus does. When Jesus comes in the, great, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like, if you hate your brother, then you've murdered him in your heart. That if you look at someone lustfully, then you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Jesus took the law and he applies it to our heart in a way that makes it impossible to keep. You can murder without killing. You can commit adultery without uh, physical action or even being married. See, the Pharisees were not criticized because they were strict and because they were harsh. They were criticized because they understood the law in a way that they would try to manipulate it so that they could follow the letter without following the heart. They would say things like, well, what does work count as? How deep of a hole can I dig on the Sabbath before it becomes work? They miss what the law is about. And the law is about revealing that God is holy and God is perfect. We look at Jesus and we recognize he kept the law perfectly, the heart of the law. That he brings a way for us to be with God. We can just be honest. If we had to follow the Old Testament law to the letter, most of us don't even have them all memorized, let alone being able to follow them. We would break laws and not even know that we broke them. Praise the Lord for the gospel. So then to be deceptive, to deceive, is to look far more like Satan than it is to look like Jesus. Hypocrisy. This means insincerity, pretending to have qualities or beliefs that you do not really have. For a large majority of Americans, this is the unpardonable sin. We are told by our culture and by this world that we are supposed to be the most genuine versions of ourselves that we can be. Whatever's on the inside is what needs to be on the outside. And this is tricky because there is a nugget of truth that is in there. We shouldn't be lying. We should be honest. We should be truthful about ourselves with one another. But we must understand that what is on the inside is not holy and pure and clean any more than what on the outside is. That just because we desire something doesn't mean it's right or it's good. This is a common reason why many Christians won't join churches or go to church gathering because it's just a bunch of hypocrites who gather in a holy huddle and look down on everybody else. 
When somebody says that church is full of hypocrites, we need to reply with, yes, and we would love to have you join us. We're not here because we have it all figured out. I mean, at this point in my tenure, I like we should know. I preach the Bible. Whatever text comes up is the text that's going to be preached. So if you're looking for a pat on the back and some flattery and not addressing sin, this is not going to work out well. I don't know what to tell you. Some passages that we come across are encouraging, that are meant to spur us on. Other passages that we come across are meant to call us to repent, to look at our sin, and to turn to God better. And all of the passages are meant to show us that we need a Savior. Not that we have it figured out, but that we need help. That we are needy people. I don't care if you and I leave here and we look and we feel good about ourselves. If we do that, then we've missed the gospel. What you and I need to do is we need to leave here looking at Jesus Christ and going, He is a far better Savior than I am a sinner. My hope is not in me feeling good. My hope is in the finished work of the cross. So we should be a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. But that phrase in and of itself is not completely true. It's incomplete. There used to be a video that would go around in youth groups I served in and I saw, and I think I even showed it a few times, and it always made me laugh. It's a picture of a husband and wife, but I assume they're a husband and wife. It's a male and a female, and they were talking. I don't know. I don't remember what they were talking about. And so they're talking, and the girl is just is just venting, and she's just laying out. She's like, I'm in just so much pain, and I'm hurting so much, and, and my head's hurting, and it's just, it's just constant. It's never-ending. No matter what I do, there's always this pain, and I've prayed for God to take it away, and God just won't listen to me. Why is God not listening to me? Why is he not feeling my pain? Why is he not taking care of all of these issues that I'm bringing? God has abandoned me, is what she's saying in this video. And the guy is sitting there nodding along, listening in, intently. And then finally, it gets to him and he goes, well, what about the nail? And in the video, she looks up and the, and the camera kind of pans out. And for the first time, what we see is she has a massive nail sticking out of her forehead. It's fake. It's not like real. And she looks at him in disgust and she goes, how dare you? I love the nail. It's not about the nail. It's about God not hearing me, God not listening to me, God not taking this burden away. The point of that clip that I've played a few times and have seen is that the object of the reason you're paying, if we're in an honest evaluation with this gospel lens, if we're not willing to address what's causing the pain, if we're not willing to reach and take the nail out, if we're not willing to understand that all of us to a degree are hypocritical because we're human beings and we're sinful, If we can't approach this subject with humility, then there will be no healing at it. And sometimes we're hypocritical about all the hypocrites in the church. Look at those losers gathered together. Don't they know that you can worship God on a boat or in a deer stand or at Hobby Lobby or in a restaurant or at my bed or or, uh, wherever? They aren't as holy as I am. I don't need a church to worship God. They have it all wrong. See, the problem with hypocrisy is is it's not limited to one person. It's a form of pride. We think that we're better at certain things than other people are, or we, we think that other people are worse at things than we are, and it manifests itself as hypocrisy. What you and I need is we need to understand that we need the gospel. 
that our hope is not in us being genuinely true about who we are. Our hope is in that Jesus comes and he dies for our genuinely true selves. We have gifts and we have struggles. We can honestly lay them out before the Lord. Envy is the next sin listed. It's jealousy, spite or resentment towards the success or possession of another. This is a gospel-centered church killer, yet it's a sin that's often coddled amongst Christians. To quote uh, Bernard Russell, if you desire glory, you may envy Napoleon, but Napoleon envied Caesar, Caesar envied Alexander, and Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never existed. Paul, in Galatians 5, gives this list of sins that he calls works of the flesh, and that those who partake in these works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. This is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, uh, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I warn you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is it interesting to you that envy is on that list? It's paired up with things like sexual immorality and sorcery and drunkenness. Now, Paul isn't saying if you do those things, you lose your salvation. What Paul is saying is that if you're growing in Jesus Christ, those are things that you're getting rid of in your life. But if you're coddling those things, if you're holding on to those things, if that's this core identity to who you think you are, then you may not be a Christian. It's interesting that envy is listed there, isn't it? The truth is, it's impossible to genuinely love a brother or sister in Christ if you're envious about their car or their house or their spouse or their job or their living situation or whatever it is about them. We love, uh, we, we, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we weep with those who are weeping. When we're weeping, we don't get upset that there's some that are rejoicing. And if we see some that are rejoicing, we don't get upset that they're not weeping with the weeping. We love, which means we want what's best for someone else. We're not idolizing them. We're not in their, uh, idolizing their life. We're not uh, sabotaging them because we want what they have. Slander is the next sin. It's evil speaking. It's abusive words spoken that might damage a person's reputation. Rumor, gossip, the socially acceptable sins. I need to apologize for Keith, to Keith. I spread a rumor about Keith this morning that he was two years past Medicare. Uh, he's not. He's two years till he gets to Medicare. Sorry, Keith. Slander's a tough one. Because as Christians, we will gather together and we will fight things like abortions, that they should be outlawed, and they should. We will fight things that make like our marriages should look like the biblical idea of a marriage, a man and a woman married together for life. And we will call on the government to change those laws. Yet in the next breath, we'll gossip. You know, she hasn't always been like that. His parents didn't discipline him, and look now. Those are the sins that we're comfortable with. Respect and reputation and trust are all important in a church family. So saying things behind someone's back that you would not say to their face is a sin, and it's detrimental to the gospel community that we're trying to build. And saying things to someone's face that you would never say behind their back is flattery and is a lie and is also a sin. 
all of this list Peter gives. Remember, it's not a full list. There are, there are more sins that we could certainly add to this, but they're all connected. Very rarely are we envious and we don't slander. Very rarely are we hypocritical and don't engage in deceit. They're not independent. They're not limited to like everybody has one sin, and if you get that one sin taken care of, you're good. No, no, no. These compound and they stack upon each other. And Paul's writing, or Peter's writing this to people who are being persecuted, who are going to stand and die for their faith in Jesus Christ. Yet he found it enough to write this in the Word that the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so because in those brother and sisters' hearts, these issues were still going on too. He's addressing a heart that cares more for selfish desires than it does for the brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. What Peter's saying is he's having have close, loving relationships, real relationships with one another. How? Verse 2. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. We've, we've just gotten to the second verse of chapter 2 in First Peter. And this is at least the third time that Peter has emphasized for us the importance of God's word. Now don't get confused here because this illustration is used throughout the Bible, but it's being used differently here by Peter. In other places, Paul will use it to scold believers who should be more mature in their faith. 1 Corinthians 3.2 says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not, ready f- uh, not yet ready for it. In fact, you still are not ready. Hebrews uh, verse fi- uh, chapter 5, verse 12 says, Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced about the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, those who have senses and have been trained to distinguish between the good and the evil. I wanted to point those out because what Peter's saying here is different than that. Paul is scolding people who need to grow up in their faith. What Peter's saying here is not you need to grow up. What he's saying is you need to desire the word of God like a baby desires milk. He's not saying get off milk onto something else. Like Don't mix up our, our metaphors. I've had... With all three of our kids, they would wake up in the middle of the night crying for a bottle. And they would act like they had never eaten before. And it would take a bottle to pacify them. I would, you know, change the diapers, especially with Addie. With the other two, I didn't wake up as much. Morgan would get ready. I would, you know, change the diaper, and they would cry the entire time when I would change the diaper. It didn't pacify them. I'd try to give them a pacifier, and it wouldn't pacify them. That name is deceptive. When they want milk, they want milk. Their favorite toy won't help. Their parents can't calm them down. Sleep won't distract them. You could offer a baby a million dollars to stop crying for milk, and you know what they'll do? Cry for milk. They can be in a public place. They will have no sign of embarrassment. Screaming, acting like you have never fed them before. Peter says that's how we should be desiring the pure word of God. I love that Peter doesn't come, he says, rid of all of these things. And then he doesn't come back with, now put on these things. 
Instead, what Peter says is you rid yourself of these things and then you desire instead. Understand that the word of God is what satisfies us. That if we sing songs that are not gospel-centered, that you should leave thirsty and longing for the word. If you hear a sermon that is not gospel-centered, you should leave thirsty and longing for the word. If you miss our gatherings, which happens from time to time, I hope you're left longing for the word of God. I know in my life, I want to wake up and desire the word of God like a baby wakes up in the middle of the night and needs milk. That I can't have anything else until we get to the Word. That I need to rearrange my life for the Word. I need to rearrange my life for the gathered church, which is centered on the Word. Because this Word, the pure Word, grows us up in our salvation. A salvation that calls us to leave behind unholy things and unholy attitudes and holy desires and to desire the Word of God. If you remember in in chapter 1, Peter calls the word of God the gospel that was proclaimed to you, that they're synonymous, that they're together, that this salvation, this deliverance, when we've tasted of it, we know is good and is worth it and is something that we desire. All else pales in comparison to this gospel. And it's not just something that you and I can take somebody else's word for. Imagine with me. At our next potluck, which is at the end of January, if you don't have your calendars marked, you eat something and it's the best thing you've ever tasted in your life. And so whoever you're sitting with, you look at them and you say, you have to try this. There's tears rolling down your face and you, you look quickly at the table to see how much food is left. You realize there's this massive bowl or pan of whatever it is that you ate. There's plenty of it, so you don't have to worry about them eating too much. You know you can go get more. You're asking, who made this? How can I be adopted into their family or can I adopt them? It's this life-changing moment because the taste of the food is so good. And then the people at your table that you're like, you have to try this. They look at you and they go, eh, I'll just take your word for it. Which is like a, a two-feeling, right? One, you're demoralized because you want to share that goodness with others. But two, there's a little part of you that's happy because that means they're not going to eat some of the food that you want. And everybody's cleaning up. You're sitting in the blue chair around the table, physically unable to move. Everybody saw you shoveling that food into your gullet, and you made sure everybody saw you. When you hear this faint little conversation taking place over the noise of your stomach, digestion sounds. Those losers at the table that brushed you off, that you wanted to share the food with, they're telling somebody else how much they love the food that they didn't eat. How good it was. And suddenly the sense of justice rises up in you and you muster enough strength and energy to stand and you quickly race or waddle towards them right to right this blatant wrong and you stick your finger in their face and you say, what are you talking about? You say, did you eat the food? And they say, well, no. And you say, well, then how do you know how good it is? And they said, well, we saw how much you enjoyed it. And so I lived it through you. And you look at them and you say, but did you taste it? No. Then you will never fully understand. They won't be craving that at the next meal when they be served because they never tasted it. No one ever became an addict to something that they never tried. No one's ever desired something that they've never felt or that they've never had. 
This is what the Bible is telling us. This is what Jesus is saying in God's word. It's the same that's true of Jesus, and it's the same that's true of the gospel, that if we proclaim that Jesus is awesome, he is great. But have you tasted in that gospel? Have you felt that goodness and the grace of God wash over you? This is important because it's the hinge of everything else that Peter's saying. You will not desire the word of God unless you've tasted of the word of God. You will not allow God's word to pierce into your heart and into your soul unless you've experienced God's word washing over you. You may ride on the joy of others around you because that's what you're supposed to do, but have you tasted yourself and seen that the Lord is good? Are you desiring the word of God? That's how, like when we taste that God is good, we desire the word of God, and when we desire the word of God, you know what we don't want to do? We don't want to have malice. We don't want to be deceitful. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to envy. We don't want to slander. We want to love our brothers and sisters in the same way that Christ loved us because that's the experience we felt that's true and real. See, what this does is the more we taste and we see that the Lord is good, the more we desire the word. And the more we desire the gospel, the more we desire the word, the more we desire Jesus, the more we rid ourselves of the unloving things that we do and the more we love each other better. The more we grow in Christ if we're believers. And the more that we grow in Christ as believers, the more that we uh, grow in this desire for God's word, the more we stand out against a world that is often dark and has no hope and has no thing that is good to desire. So then our neighbors see how we desire the word of God and it is strange to them. Our kids see how our faith is lived out in a way that's not just Sunday morning and Wednesday nights, but it's throughout the whole course of the week, and it's strange to them. That they see that we thrive in the bounds that God has laid for our lives, that the world teaches us we should break those things and go past them, but what they see us doing is thriving, living in a way where we're happy and we're joyful, where we desire God's word, where we genuinely love other people the way that God calls us to, and it's strange to them, and what's strange to them is attractive. They don't know what it is, but they know it's valuable. That's where the gospel seeps into the world. It's not us screaming at the top of our lungs for people to repent, although we should sometimes. It's in our normal, everyday lives that God places us in places with people around us for us to display the gospel where the rubber meets the road. You can't white knuckle the gospel. You can't just grip and hold on to it so tight by your own power and your own strength that you can manage it. Holiness cannot be faked easily and it cannot be faked for long. The gospel witness is clear. Think about that. We're not, this isn't our home. We have an accent that doesn't fit in here. 
And so we grow in the gospel, which means we repent of our sin. We grow in the gospel, which means we seek forgiveness where we need to seek forgiveness, and we're quickly to forgive others who wrong us. We grow in the gospel, which means we desire God's word more and more. We commit to reading his word. We commit to meditating on his word, to growing on it. Gospel growth looks like we get more and more uncomfortable with the world. We're not reclusing from the world. We're there as this gospel light that's shining in a dark place that desperately needs Jesus, but we certainly don't fit in. So this morning as we finish this sermon, I want to just point out two things. If you're an unbeliever, that will make no sense to you whatsoever. Your tendency is going to be, okay, so I need to not be have malice, not have deceit, not have hypocrisy, not have envy, not slander, and then read God's word. And what you've done is you've just stacked on all of these do's and these don'ts onto your life. And if you're an unbeliever and you're not motivated by the gospel of Jesus, what that's going to do is it's going to weigh you down and it's going to break you. You will try to do something and then you'll fail and it's going to compound guilt. You're going to try to read the Bible, but you're not going to get up in the morning to do it. or You're not going to step late and read it and it's going to compound that guilt and fail. And ultimately it's going to crush you and leave you without any hope. Because the reality is you're not good enough. But Jesus is. That grace is not something that can be earned. It's a gift that is received. So if you're an unbeliever, I pray that you would hear those words and you wouldn't walk away going, I need to do better. You would walk away going, I need a Savior. That you would repent of your sins, that you would turn to Jesus, that you would pray, God, save me, and he will. And if you're a believer who's here, the same is true for us. Our tendency in rural, hard-working America is we want to do things because that's what we do. But the gospel is not earned. So repent of trying to earn it and then rest in the grace of Jesus. Commit to loving one another. Commit to desiring the word of the Lord. The good thing about God's word is the more you read it, the more you find. And the more you find, the more you want to read it. And the more you read it, the more you want to find it. It goes on and on and on. That it is enough. That it is applicable, that it is authoritative, and that it is for you and for me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we get to gather together, that we get to sing your gospel, Father, together. That we can understand that you've placed all of us, if we're believers in Jesus, you've placed all of us here in this moment and in this place for these purposes that you've laid before us to share your gospel with a world that desperately needs it. God, with Ira that desperately needs Jesus. Help us to be faithful, not just with our words, but with our actions. God, I pray that you'd forgive us for all the times when we don't cast off, when we don't rid ourselves of the things that we're supposed to rid ourselves of, when our love that we have for our brothers and sisters is not love. God, I pray that you would forgive us, that you'd help us to desire your gospel, your word more that you would be the power, that you would be the source of all of our energies and of all of our desires. We thank you for Jesus, for the finished work of the cross, and it's in your name we pray.